Tom Holland, not the British actor who's currently making a ton of money playing Spider-Man, but the guy by the same name who is also British and also famous, at least in England. Uh, but this one is a historian, and he specializes in classical and medieval history. And he was raised as a Christian, but he came to reject Christianity. And a couple of years ago, in an article for The Guardian, he talks about his path to leaving Christianity. Here's a quote. When I was a boy, my upbringing as a Christian was forever being weathered by the gale force winds of my enthusiasms. First, there were dinosaurs. I vividly remember my shock when at Sunday school one day, I opened my children's Bible and found an illustration on its first page of Adam and Eve with a brachiosaur. Six years old I may have been, but one thing I was certain of, no human being had ever laid eyes on a sauropod. That the teacher seemed not to care about this error only compounded my deep moral outrage and bewilderment. As a six-year-old, he said, And a faint shadow of doubt, for the first time, darkened my Christian faith. This morning is the sixth sermon in a series of messages this fall called Explore God. And in this series, we've been asking big questions about Christianity. Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? And if there is a God, why does he allow pain and suffering? And can Jesus really be God? And what about Christianity? Isn't it narrow, too narrow? And this morning, we're asking the question, is the Bible reliable? And to be a little more specific with the question, we're going to focus mainly, but not entirely, on the Gospels, the four books in the Bible that are biographies of Jesus. If you brought a Bible along, find our Gospel reading for the morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that Bishop Andudu read to us just a few moments ago. This is the, op- this is the preface to Luke's Gospel. And um, in, in this preface, Luke tells us a couple of things. He tells us that he's writing the gospel for a guy by the name of Theophilus. And he gives him a title in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. This is, this is not like a, a kind thing, it's a title. And so based on the, the, his name and our understanding of names at that time in history, and based on this title, it seems that, he, that Theophilus, the guy that Luke is writing this to, was an elite educated, urbane man, and very likely a Roman official. So that's who he's writing the letter to. And we get the sense that Theophilus' belief in Jesus Christ, much like ours today, has come under scrutiny. I mean, you can easily imagine Theophilus at a dinner party with his educated peers and them pressing him on this newfound belief. So Luke writes to his friend who's accepted the gospel message. And what he says to him, like many of us, is it seems that you've been, Theophilus, challenged by critics. Maybe critics externally or maybe your own internal doubts. And Theophilus is wondering, can I trust what I've been told about Jesus? 
So Luke tells us his purpose in writing this gospel in verse 4, the very last phrase, is so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, this was originally written in Greek, and that word certainty, it, um, this was before modern medicine and science. So when we use the word certainty today, it, it's a different thing because we're a couple of hundred years deep into the scientific method. So for us, certainty can carry this kind of ironclad, without any doubt whatsoever, one plus one equals two kind of kind of view. But this word certainty, I think it's better translated into, into English as reliable. Re see, reliable takes on a, a different kind of a note, a tone to it. And, and, and in Greek, reliable is the very last word of the preface. In fact, verses 1 to 4 is one sentence in Greek, and it's very kind of highfalutin, and it's, it's hard to kind of track, and it all ends on that word, the reliability of Scripture. Reliable, confident, certain. This is why Luke is writing this, to try to help Theophilus with this. Now, not everyone in this room is a Christian. We're a mixture in our church of believers and half-believers and ex-believers and people open to belief but not convinced and people coming because somebody's making them come. And uh, so if you are a Christian, but maybe you have questions and doubts about the reliability of Scripture, I hope what is about to happen is that I, I hope you're going to be encouraged this morning to see that we do have a reliable foundation to our faith in Jesus Christ. We do have solid historical kind of basis to it. If you're not a Christian, I, I, what I want to happen to do this morning is invite you to consider evidence that the Gospels are trustworthy guides to Jesus Christ. And, and to do this, I'm going to take the two most significant um, criticisms of the Gospels, and I'm going to try to give them an honest um, account the first one is that the Gospels are more legend than history, more fantasy than fact. I'll deal with that one first. And the second one is that we actually don't have the Gospel manuscripts, the originals, and what we do have have been filled with errors. These are the two most um, kind of debilitating blows that um, modern skeptics of the Bible have dealt so let's start with the first one. This idea that the Gospels are fiction, not history. Um, I think the most famous proponent of this right now in America is, is a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religion at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's written or edited over 30 books, five of which are New York Times bestsellers, over 2 million copies in print. He's been translated into 27 languages. And over the last decade or so, Ehrman has emerged as one of America's most prolific and persuasive skeptics of the, of the Bible's reliability. And part of what makes Ehrman so significant is not he's a really compelling kind of speaker, but it's also that he was a Christian. He um, became a Christian as a teenager. Um, he uh, went to Princeton and did a PhD on the, the manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. 
He's, a, he's, he's a quite a significant um, intellect in this world. Uh, and he even began his scholarly career as a devout Christian who was out of the closet in the scholarly world as a believer in Christ and a believer in the Bible. But, but then he, lo- he moved away from that. And now he's quite antagonistic. And he, and he identifies himself as an agnostic atheist, um, kind of trying to pick a fight with those who say you can't be both. Um, and, and, and Ehrman has, has written some really, he, he writes popular books and really kind of uh, esoteric academic books. And he's not alone in his view, but I think he's one of the most articulate representatives of this view. And the theory goes like this. There's two steps to it. The first step is this. The powerful early church squashed competing uh, theologies, competing books that were written about Jesus that didn't fit in with the theological agenda. That um, there were lots of biographies written of Jesus, and the ones that are in our Bible are the ones that the leaders of the church reinforced their kind of position. The second move of the argument is that then, as the Bible was transmitted, it was changed, it was intentionally transformed to further and further suit the purposes of those in power. And he makes this argument from historical manuscripts. and it, 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 This narrative is perfect for our society today because it feeds our desire for conspiracy and intrigue. And it confirms our suspicions that history is rewritten by the powerful winners. Now many people reading Ehrman's books and listening to his lectures where he presents evidence for this view, many, many people have lost confidence in Christianity, a bit like six-year-old Tom Holland looking at the Bible um, with a picture of Adam and Eve existing at the same time as dinosaurs and knowing that, that there's no way that that could have occurred. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Here, Listen to what Luke says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. Now what I want you to notice is not only that he's not only making a claim for what the content of the gospel is, it's the life of Jesus, He's also making a statement about the form of this book. He's saying this is not fantasy, this is not poetry, this is not myth. You can file this book under the category of history. That's what he says in the first paragraph. Now I'm not saying he's, I'm just saying that's what he's claiming to do. He's saying this is history, this is a book. He says treat this as a historical document that's a reliable presentation of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he tells us about his, he not only tells us about his content, he not only tells us about the form, he also reveals his sources and his methodology. That's what history does. He says, I used eyewitnesses, I interviewed them. So he's explaining, he's laying out, here's the content, here's the form, here's my source, here, my sources, and here's my methodology. And then when you read his book, he continues to act like a historian. 
And one of the ways, lots of ways, we don't have time to do it all this morning. I'm going to try to pick out some things that I think are compelling just to give you a sense of the whole. One of the things he does throughout the book is he names eyewitnesses. Like, has anybody ever come to you and said, you know what I heard about you? And you're like, who said that? And they're like, well, I'm not going to tell you. And you're like, okay then, your mama, right? And so, but when somebody says, you know what Donna Trainum told me about you? Then you're like, what did she say, right? So, no, no. He names his eyewitnesses. He names them. For example, at the high point of the whole story, the crucifixion, Luke chapter 23, verse 36, right when the high point of all the drama, Jesus is carrying his cross to be crucified. And it says, as Luke 23, 26, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. This is like saying, you know Simon from Cyrene? Oh, and this is where he was at that point in time, and this is where he was coming from. He's the one they gave the cross to. Not they gave it to some dude who, well, you know, just somebody. No, he says, here's the guy. Here's where he's from. Here's where his hometown is. You can go there and check with people. And here's where he was actually coming from that day. Now, this is, I'm not saying that seals the deal. I'm just saying when we analyze this, that's the kind of thing that um, history does, historical accounts do. And we see this all over the place. I mean, and I'm going to show you one of the biggest ones. It's not in the Gospels. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This was, this was one of the first things written after the life of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of the oldest parts of the New Testament. And here the writer, Paul, says, Christ died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now that's not a move you make. If you're trying to hide something, you don't say 500 people saw it. Oh, and they're all still alive. And then he goes on. You can't claim 500 eyewitnesses in a small country close to the event. If that's not a move you make if you're trying to invent something. Another place where we see this in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 26, verse 26. And this is a significant one. Paul says... The king, talking about King Agrippa, a Roman governor in Israel at that time, named earlier in the passage. The king knows about these things, talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now look, you cannot write a historical document calling a king to the witness stand if you're trying to hide it. He just outed the king as knowing this. Now, that's not the way to invent something. That's, that's calling a well-known public figure who is accessible to the witness stand. And then there are hundreds of names all through the Gospels. There are hundreds. When you're reading the Gospels and you see name after name after name in cities, and this is a very small place, like this is not the kind of move you make when you're making up a story. Now, why does this matter? Two primary things that should come out of what I've just said. Think about the fact that for a highly altered 
fictionalized account of an event to actually take hold in a public imagination, it would be necessary that the actual eyewitnesses and their children and their grandchildren are long since dead. For example, a couple of times in my life, I have met somebody who told me the United States did not put a man on the moon. That was all a sham. I grew up from my adolescence on, on the southeast side of Houston, and the neighbor to my city was Clear Lake, where NASA's mission control is. And my adopted grandparents were a part of putting a man on the moon. They were involved in that. And not just that, probably two-thirds of all my friends, their parents worked in NASA. Now, if you wanted to really make the argument that we did not put somebody on the moon, you would not only have to deal with all the eyewitnesses, you would have to deal with all of Clear Lake and Laporte and Pasadena and all of the children of the people who are part of that and all of their grandchildren. We would all have to be off the scene in order to make a legitimate argument that took hold in public imagination. So... Thanks. (laughs) Here's the second thing. The second thing is that historians normally take very seriously biographies written within a generation or two of their subject. If the people who argue that the four Christian gospels are really the stuff of legend, they need to assess the historical quality of the gospels with the kind of painstaking historical work that we use for other historical documents. Now, there's something else. When we're trying to deal with eyewitness evidence, it's a complicated game. One of the things about eyewitness evidence is that it typically has details, more details, and not just generalities. Part of the characteristic of eyewitness evidence is specific details. So we can look at the details of the Gospels and, and, and see that they reflect, what they reflect things we know from archaeology, from history, from all sorts of other disciplines about first century Palestine. Now, and I'm going to give you an example that's going to sound quite pedantic, but it's actually quite significant. It's the use of names. Um, I announced in the first service, by the way, that Josh and Sarah, they told me I can tell you this, they're pregnant. And um, they're going to have a baby in the most holy of all months, April. Right, Michelle? That's right. Do you know there's like five people in our church born on the best day of April the 25th? Now, I know not most of you, but some of us were. And so we're, the, the baby's due on April the 20th, so we can pray and hope. But you know what Josh and Sarah are doing right now when it comes to naming their baby? They're probably going to this website, ourbabynamer.com. And you can go there and you can find out what's really popular in the baby name world right now. And you can also type in like the year you were born and find out the most popular. Not only that, ourbabynamer.com can localize information. It can say in this particular area. Have y'all been looking at this? Is that why you're giggling? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> Um, you can find out like in what particular geographic areas on what particular year, what particular names were most impossible. Do you know that we can do that with history? Do you know that through archaeology, through all sorts of disciplines, we can look at what names were most popular in what places at what time? Now, it turns out 
that when you drill down into the area where Jesus and the Gospels are in first century Palestine, that archaeology has turned up thousands upon thousands of names. And they can collate the data, and they can date the shards, and they can find out what names were popular when in that area. And you know what scholars using ourbabynamer.com have told us about first century Palestine? The first most popular name at the time of the Gospels is Simon. Number two is Joseph. Number three is Lazarus. Number four is Judas. Five is John. Six is Jesus. Now, do those names sound familiar? This list basically mirrors the popularity of names in the Gospels. The top two most common names in the Gospels are Simon and Joseph. Now, when you look at Jewish names outside of Palestine at the same time, say in Egypt, it's a completely different set of names. So the Gospel writers are precise not only by giving names, but they've actually given the right names, that the frequency it's accurate to the time and the region. Now think about how good you are at remembering things about people and where they work and where they're from. It's, we're good at remembering stories. How good are you at remembering names? Names are easier to forget than stories. And yet we have lots of the right names in the New Testament. The gospel writers are, all, I've, all I'm saying is that they are very accurate with the exact sort of names we would expect. This is the way you start kind of going after eyewitness data from thousands of years ago. This is one of the drill down points. So here's my point. If the Gospels have gotten the names right in frequency and detail, don't you think they're capable of getting the bigger story about Jesus right? Now this doesn't seal the deal. It's just a piece of serious scholarly evidence. Luke claims in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, I talk to eyewitnesses, I'm setting down an orderly account. He claims that he's doing careful historical investigation into Christianity, that it's based on these witnesses and these sources that he's tapping into, they're not just giving him a general story that's easy to fabricate. They actually name names and they connect them up to places they name regions and political figures and religious customs in particular areas and legal codes, all with remarkable accuracy. When we consider this evidence and a lot more like it in its detail, see, it's easy for somebody to say conspiracy theory kind of arguments because we live in a moment where that's really um, in vogue. But when we say, okay, let's look at the details, these are some of the things we see. All right, that's the first big, serious argument that is used by scholars against the New Testament. The second one would concede the ground on that and say, okay, okay. So these, these stories of Jesus were written close to the point in time when it occurred. The second biggest argument is, but you know we don't have any of the originals. All we have is copies of copies. And so the second argument is, how do we know that what we're reading is original? Like even, okay, the originals were good, but, but it, it got changed. How can we trust what we're reading? How can we have confidence? So what's going on in this argument? A couple of things. First of all, the person making the argument, the skeptical scholar, they're, they're assuming something. 
they're, assume, they're right. We don't have any originals. We have copies. But what they're assuming is that the process of copying the Gospels was haphazard. Like, right? If you say we have copies, oh, that, that proves it's wrong. Well, no, it doesn't. No, no. It depends. Like, just because I give you a copy of something, that doesn't prove it's wrong. The question is, is it an accurate copy? And see, that argument is presuming that the copying process was somehow, um, because they were copied, they can't be trusted. No. Can the copying process be trusted? Is the, it's sort of like the telephone analogy game, right? I, I whisper something in Mike's ear, and he whispers in Don, and whispers Bishop on and go around. It's that kind of analogy. If it was copied, therefore it's. But you know, the whole telephone analogy game depends on the fact that it's not written down, and you're not painstakingly writing it again. It's depending on the fact that you're whispering in quiet, and you're starting out with Mike, and you're whispering <laughs> into that ear. Donna, does a whisper into Mike's ear always come across the way? No, no, I'll, I'll pick on somebody else. No, I got to lay off you guys. Okay, now let's think about the copying process. Here's some pertinent facts. Christianity grew out of Judaism. The early Christians continued the tradition of copying sacred texts from Jews. Did Jews, were they haphazard when they copied their sacred text? No. Because they were so convinced that was the word of God. They would, when they copied, they had all these rules. They would go back and count the letters and compare it to the original. They would count it backwards and compare it to the original. They'd go down and compare it to the original. They'd count all the letters on a page and compare it. They had massive kind of checks and balances set up. Why? Because we're talking about the Jews. They believed this was the word of God. Now that's who was copying the New Testament gospel. So you're not just saying they played telephone. They absolutely did not play telephone. They were copying the Gospels through a set of techniques they had been developing for centuries. They believed it was the words of God and that their job was not to change it. If there was one letter missing on one of these documents, the rules were they had to burn it. They had to destroy it. They couldn't even scratch it out. One analogy that's used by skeptics is that the original documents, we should think of them like a plush lawn. And that as copies were made, errors grew up, and they're, and they're like weeds growing up and taking over a beautiful lawn. The problem with that analogy is that it can cut the other way. Scribes were hired gardeners. They were trained to notice the weeds and to take them out. And so we can evaluate their work. You know that over the last 150 years, scholars have turned up an enormous amount of these manuscripts that were within, in some cases, less than a decade of the original. There's, there's thousands upon thousands of them. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts from those early days. So we can compare these and say, is, are weeds growing up? Are there all these variations? Are there all these differences? And you know what happens when we do this? There are 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. 138,000. 138,000. Do you know how many of those words are different between all those thousands upon thousands of manuscripts? 1,400. 1%. It is not a lush lawn grown up with weeds. Only 1% of the words of the New Testament have any variation that anybody is debating between all of these manuscripts. 
And in those 1,400 words that we're not sure, was it this word or that word? It's typically things like pronouns and um, forms of words. In no single instance, in not one single instance, is any doctrine, is any event at stake by the variations. They're all really little things like um, forms of Greek words. Anyway, it's very small. So now, now what am I saying? What I'm saying is that all those boring details when you read the Gospels and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the time of day or, or the person's name or the place they're from and all that, all those little bitty details. What I'm saying is you can be confident that not only is the big event right, it's right down to the smallest little details. Despite sensationalist and exaggerated claims that the text has been corrupted, the discrepancies in the manuscripts are very small and all of them are minor. And they are of no doctrinal significance. In fact, the evidence for the New Testament manuscripts is far greater than any document from the ancient world. Anyone. Um, I mean, we could just go on and on. Like, one of the most famous documents we have for, from the ancient world, Tacitus, Tacitus, is something he wrote. And the nearest copy to the original we have is a thousand years old. And this is the foundation of entire classic departments at universities. But the nearest to the original is 1,000 years away. And we have one copy of that. Then you have to go several centuries to get another copy. We have 5,000 various copies in different parts of the Mediterranean of the New Testament within a few years of it being written. Nothing compares to this. Now, we've only begun to scratch the surface regarding the trustworthiness, the reliability of the Bible. So, but, but that's really all we've got time for. And I want to shift gears here at the end and say a couple of things about what to do with this. If you're not a Christian... And you are genuinely interested in exploring this topic. There is so much more to consider. And I'll be happy to talk with you and point you to more research. But I want to talk to those of you who are Christians. For Christians, the Bible is non-negotiable. It's essential. No Bible, no Christianity. A weak Bible, no Christianity. Christianity stands or falls with the Bible. Here's what I want you to think about for a minute. The essence of Christianity is a relationship with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And relationships are based on communication. And the Bible is, is our primary way of having communication with God. However, more and more I encounter people who identify themselves as Christians and they're skeptical of the Bible. Not really sure it's plausible. Not really sure it has meaning for us today. Not sure if we can trust it. And I keep meeting Christians who are content to leave it at that level of skepticism. I, I want to push on you for a minute about that. Have you ever deliberately avoided a phone call? Like you pick it up? <laughs> oh, no. Right? This is one of the gifts of caller ID. You see the caller ID and you say, I can't deal with them right now. 
Or you in, have you ever intentionally not read an email message? Name, subject line, moving right along. Sometimes we want communication to fail because we want to avoid someone. The idea that the Bible has been lost in transmission, either lost to legend or lost to copyist. It's a um, self-protecting move. It lets you off the hook. It declares that the attempt at communication has been unsuccessful. Oh, I didn't get your email. It's that kind of move. Oh, I missed your call. I'm sorry about that. The plea of lost in transmission can be a way of absolving yourself of personal responsibility, a way of getting out of living under the authority of Scripture. It can be quite a sophisticated form of talk to the hand. But when you read the Gospels, they demand a response, a response to Jesus Christ. Luke isn't just concerned that Theophilus is able to say, yeah, that Jesus stuff has a, real, has a solid base in history. He wants a whole lot more than that. He wants Theophilus to trust Jesus and to respond to Jesus. And the reliableness of it serves that agenda. The idea that the Gospels have been lost in legend or in history or in the process of transmission is appealing to us because we can plead communication failure and be absolved of having to deal with a God who is telling us things that don't fit within our worldview, within our particular moment in this secular age. We've seen there is good evidence to believe in the reliability of the Bible. I've mentioned just a very small part of it. And there is so much more to discover if you're willing to do it. But I want to close by looking at our epistle reading, 2 Timothy. Listen to what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And because it's breathed out by God, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Because, look, it is reliable, but it is much more than that. Through Scripture, God reproves us. He corrects us. Are 21st century Americans willing to be told they're wrong about their views? Are we willing to be told by poor people 2,000 years ago who had a different color of skin that we are wrong? I think this is behind a lot of the low-grade skepticism growing up in churches today. It is a form of ethnocentric arrogance. And it's also a form of the creature saying to the creator, No. All scripture is breathed out by God. And if you read it that way, it will correct you. It won't line up. It'll challenge you. So go back to our psalm that we read. It's in your worship guide. Psalm 89. I want to point out a couple of things that we read. 
Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. Now look at this. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now notice what he's doing. Moses wrote the law, but he doesn't say Moses' law. He says, God, it's your law. Your word, this is God's word, is the claim that's being made. Verse uh, 93, I will never forget your precepts. And he's talking about the Bible. For by them you have given me life. This is the claim. This is what I meant. No Bible, no Christianity. God gives life to us through the Bible. That's what it means that it's inspired. It means God's very life force is in the Bible. It means the Bible is, a, is not like a classic. It's not a classic in the sense that it's got perennial truths. No, this is a total different kind of book. God did a bunch of stuff in history. That was significant. The Bible is not that stuff God did. The Bible is God's authorized account of that stuff. But here's the, clip, the, the clincher. Just as much as God was acting in history, the claim of Christianity is the same God acts in this account of history. So God's action was in the normal, in the event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God did that. But the Bible is also claiming that this particular account of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the way God is acting in the world today. That's what he's saying here. Your word. Your, if you go down through it and just circle all the times he says, your word, your, your, your. He's talking about the Bible and he slips right past the human authors. Was the Bible written by humans? Absolutely. But that in no way means that we can patronize them. The scriptures are God's word. They give us life. They are trustworthy. So here's, here's the deal. If um, my wife says something to me, and my posture is cynical and skeptical, are we going to have a very good moment of communication? I am setting myself up. Have you ever talked to somebody who was like this? Do you feel warm and fuzzy like they're going to really hear what you're about to say? No, you know they already know what you're going to say, and they're already ready to say something back. So you might as well just quit, right? If you want God to give you life, you've got to get to the place where you uncross your arms. And when you read scripture, you are willing to believe that God himself is speaking to you. And if, his, and if re, the reliability of the gospels helps you get there, then you need to study the reliability of the gospel.